Well, as we typically do, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time as we read God's Word. Y'all love that, don't you? Um, we're going to be reading, we're going to be studying 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19 together. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. It wash over us this morning. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share, um, you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or even a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let us, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may now be seated. We're getting close. We're going to finish up our study in Peter over the next couple of weeks and by the end of August. And, and I've, I have been so encouraged by this study. I think the, the lessons and the principles and the truths that we have been trying to slowly, slow drip into our hearts have been uh, so timely. Because I think we live in a world, particularly, I think, listen, I want to make sure I clarify something. I don't think we live in a world that's that different from, say, what happened right after the garden. I think sometimes we are trying to draw into this illusion that somehow or another life is progressively getting worse. Um, and sin's impact on the world certainly does leave its mark, that is to be sure. But I don't think that we need to be always constantly lured into this kind of idea that somehow or another what we are experiencing today is far worse than maybe other generations. There are seasons and ebbs and flows throughout the human history and everything. But with that being said, I think one of the great lessons that we need to learn in life, and I think if you've been around, if you've been living any time along, you, you know this principle, a principle I think is lost. It is, as we live this life, we all recognize, or those of us who, again, who've been longer in the tooth than others, Anything worth having is worth working for. You heard that statement? Maybe your granddaddy or your grandmother said it to you at some point. Uh, anything worth having is worth looking, working for. The opposite is also true. Anything not worth working for is probably not worth having. And we live in a world that constantly tries to challenge that idea, though subtly, and, and, and they do so by... They, they embrace an idea that somehow or another there's this kind of basic entitlement to us in life... Um, and these entitlements, um, this entitlement culture uh, says that everything should fall into our laps, right? I mean, and, and listen, you can look at all kinds of different examples. This is not about us letting our minds wander into all the different examples where this is true. But the reality is I think that's probably a real idea that's probably buried deep, buried deep into the human heart because somehow or another we've lived a life that we can do, like we deserve certain things and therefore those certain things should just automatically come to us. You might say that today many find their focus um, almost entirely on the spoils of life as the aim of life. 
right? Everything's going to fall in our hands, so therefore, what light makes life meaningful is that you and I obtain the spoils of life. Yet, the contrary truth that I think we find in Scripture, especially those of us who understand the role of suffering in our life, and we think about this from a Christian's perspective, the spoils of life are not just are not as meaningful unless the road that we have traveled has been filled with those twists and turns and those bumps and those grinds, right? Like I, I, Anyone who's ever obtained anything understands that what you have obtained or has, is always going to be richer and more valuable when you've had to work for it, when you've had to go through difficult seasons to get to that side of life. Well, I think sometimes this is what Christians need to constantly come back to, and we need to reframe ourselves, reframe our lives about our role and what our role in this world is, and in terms especially knowing that the Bible calls us and, and seems to indicate that Christians are to suffer in this life. And because we suffer in this life, the Christian will know more the, the deep rich, the richness and the beauty of what heaven will be like and what our redemption and the final work of redemption will be like when Jesus returns. And the Bible suggests that not only that suffering is a reality, but as we'll see in today's text, that suffering is a privilege. That we get the privilege to participate in the sufferings of Christ as we just read. Now look, there's a lot we can say about privilege, and privilege is not the most, it's not the most popular word in our culture, again, these days. But, but, but privilege is not a bad thing, especially when you have the privilege of God's love and grace, mercy, and power in your, in your corner, right? And so Christians, let's not be afraid of the privilege. And even if that privilege comes with suffering. Amen? So here's my main idea. The Christian suffers well when they are not surprised by their trials, but count it as a privilege to participate in the sufferings of Christ. The Christian suffers well when they are not surprised by their trials, but count them as a privilege to participate in the sufferings of Christ. That's my main idea this morning. That's the title you might see in your bulletin. The Christian's Guide to Suffering Well. Here's what we've seen the last few weeks on this topic of suffering. We've considered at the end of chapter 3 the fact that we need to maintain our zeal in suffering. We saw last week we considered suffering's role in our own sanctification. Today we're going to talk about suffering well. There's four main ideas that I want to talk about this morning from this text. The first is going to be the bigger idea. It's going to take a little more time to unpack, and then the last three will probably be more application-oriented in and of themselves. Okay? So first point that we want to cover this morning, and we're actually going to go to the end of the text we're studying, 17 through 19, to, to kind of unpack this. We need to just tackle the question of suffering. Do we not? I think sometimes Christians, we just don't, we don't know how to even deal with this topic of suffering. Let's just read the text itself again. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will it be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? And then he gives, he references the Proverbs there to support that. And what he's talking about there is he's just telling the church, he's implying the church that, that suffering is going to be a reality for us too, and, and, and the life will be difficult for us too. And you might be asking yourself, well, why is that the case, right? Why, why does God allow suffering in our lives? That's one of the most perplexing questions of our lives, right? It is, 
we use the word theodicy. Theodicy is a question of how do we deal with life and all the the, the, the root of all the difficulties we face and still and still grasp the goodness behind that. It's one of those perplexing questions that frankly many will use as a means to reject God entirely. They'll say, well, because there's suffering in this world, there must not be a God. So they'll do some kind of form of, of this. They'll say, well, if God is all good and if God is all powerful, you've heard it, right? God is all good and God is all powerful. He wouldn't allow suffering in this world. So they do one of two little gymnastics in their minds. They're either one, and reject God entirely, right? Or they'll say, well, God can't be all powerful or God can't be all loving. And so if God's not all powerful, that means God's imp- is, he's impotent to us. He's there subjecting himself to our whims and whatever decisions we make. And therefore, God himself is kind of powerless to do with anything in his life. And that, to us, is an egregious, egregious offense to the scriptures. The other side of the fence is, is that God can't be love, all loving because, you know, if God was all loving, he wouldn't let his people suffer. He wouldn't let the world suffer. That's not true either. And so they'll say, well, God, then, if he isn't all loving, he must be just indifferent word capricious comes to mind. Now, what's fascinating about those kinds of deductions that you may hear in different ways in, so in media or in your friends who are not believers is that by denying God exists or by denying some attribute of God or altering some attribute of God, what have they accomplished? Nothing. They've actually done, they've not made one step closer to answering the question of suffering. They've just denied something that doesn't seem plausible to them. They actually have never done, they have never done one plausible thing to deal with suffering in the world. So them denying the, the reality of suffering does not, is no more an offense to our belief. It's no more of a thing that puts us on, on, on defense as Christians, by the way we answer by what God reveals with, about himself in scriptures, than it is for someone who just denies God altogether. They still have to deal with the same things we deal with. Suffering, evil, brokenness, sin. But the Bible does have answers to those things. Very clear answers to those things. Now, whether we like them or not, we as Christians do have answers to those things, and we should not be um, embarrassed about them. Suffering isn't the capricious indifference of God. Suffering is the full force of sin manifested in mankind's rejection of God. That's what Christianity says. Suffering is a result of man's full-fledged rejection of God. And, and those, even those who are living for God, who want to, we still experience the, 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 the offspring of that suffering in various ways, whether through our own actions or through someone else's actions that may overflow onto us. But let's also be clear here, and this is what Peter's going to do within this text, is that Christians are not immune to the doubts. To say, to say that, to believe that, is to, is to believe in hopeful optimism that somehow or another we just magically overcome all of our own doubts just because we're a Christian. That's just not true either. We don't just overcome our inner, inner struggles. Again, this is what Peter is addressing here, I believe, in this text. He's, he's coming to it and says, look, it starts with the household of God. The church gets the first understanding of what real suffering is and we'll experience what suffering is. And so don't be caught off guard, he says here. We'll talk about that here in a few minutes. When trials come our way, you are not immune to suffering, basically, Peter says. Suffering is part of part and parcel of living in this life until Jesus returns. When the new heavens and new earth come, come, comes, suffering will end. But until then, 
We will be living in the same world that even the wicked do. And sometimes even Christians feel like we're suffering more than the wicked. We see this all over scriptures. Jeremiah the prophet said this. And Jeremiah 12 is an example of this. We're in verses 1 through 4. He says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all those who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and they produce fruit. And you are near in their mouth and far from their hearts. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart towards you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land, be, land mourn and, how, and, and the grass on every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it and the beasts of the birds are swept away because they said, we will not see our end. In other words, he's saying to us, he says, these people are arrogant. And they live what seemingly looks like under your prosper, under your hand, God, and your people are the ones who suffer. And so this is Jeremiah being really, really honest. And he's representing God's people too. He's representing that same heartache. Heartache that I bet lives right here in this room this morning. Why do we have to deal with all of this? And Jeremiah, in short end, God responds to Jeremiah and he says, because my people live in a man of thorns. Essentially, and I have to pluck those thorns. And suffering is the only way in which those thorns can be plucked. That's at least one reason. He says, my people, just like you, Jeremiah, put, are tempted to put more trust in the safety in their land than my protection and coverage over them. So then the question then, why does God allow suffering in the world and the lives of his own people becomes more clear, does it not? And why God allows sometimes seemingly the wicked to prosper, but the wicked do suffer. And they may not experience the full weight of that suffering right now, but they do suffer. But you have to understand the reason they don't, maybe, not, maybe, don't, maybe on the surface don't look like they're suffering as much, is because this is all they have and they're going to do everything they can to make this life work. But you and I know that this life ends. And that means also our suffering will end. And our eternity is sure. See, God's judgment functions in two ways. It, whether we experience this in our own lifetime or not, or we visibly see this demonstrated in our lives versus those who are not believers, the Bible is very clear about this. For the wicked, suffering works this way. They experience the general pain of the world. They experience one day, though, they will experience the finality of that pain in judgment. They will experience that, and so when God allows them, and by the way, pain and suffering is a grace to them, even though they may not see it this way, then they do suffer, they will suffer, their suffering shows them what their sin has caused. And if they don't see that, their suffering is there to show them their need of Jesus. And if they don't see that, their suffering is to warn them of what life with Christless attorney looks like. So just because of the wicked may prosper doesn't mean that they're not suffering or that their ultimate end will not end in full-on eternal suffering. Amen? But for the Christian, it's very, very different. Don't believe the idea that all suffering is the same suffering or all suffering has the same consequences or that you and I have the same end in suffering as, our, as those who do not believe. Actually, it's very different. For the righteous, for the elect, the testing, the fiery fire for our refinement and for God's purposes are this. That the purpose of suffering is for our refinement and sanctification. That's what we saw last week. And therefore, the purpose of suffering is to help God's people desire to do good, to spur us on to good works. That the purpose of suffering is to grow our faith and our dependence upon God. 
And that our suffering is to help people see the glory of God through his matchless grace. See, you see the difference? Those who experience suffering holding on to God see the different purposes of suffering in their lives versus the, the other side, which is it's nothing but condemnation. Hopefully stoking the fires of their heart, calling them to repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the same for us in this room. Ours is very different. It's for refinement and forming and growing our faith and pointing us to glory in God when he returns one day in his son Jesus and consummates his kingdom. So no, friends, God is not capricious. The Bible is very, very clear about this. He's very actively involved in the providences of our lives and allows those specific providences to unfold in our lives for very different purposes for us than he does for the unbeliever. You understand that? His judgments are true and they're good. And we must be careful that we fall into this trap that we think that we're wiser than God in the midst of our providences of life. We're not. We're just not. Peter's use of this word, it's time for judgment to come to the household of God, is very, very important because he's talking about the fact that this is how God has worked with his people since the beginning. The household of God there indicates this kind of what Jeremiah is talking about. He spoke to the people of God who were experiencing suffering as they were following God, yet, even when they were experiencing their suffering, even when Israel was running away from God, what had God always promised his people? They're protected, that they're marked by his grace, and that's unfathomable, is it not? The difference for us today is that Christians will not have to face what those who do not believe the God believe who do, those who do not believe the gospel will face. Yeah, we'll face difficulties. Israel, those who didn't believe in Israel will face judgment. But those who are truly Christ's will not. Again, we, we talked about the word theodicy, but theodicy is just simply that, right? It's that whole narrative of how to deal with evil and suffering, struggle and pain in life, and deal with this in a way in light of the creator and who he is and his character and his nature. Christian has a wonderful and beautiful theodicy, amen? We should, enjoy, we should rest in it, even as, as we suffer in it. So now we go back to chapter, I mean, verse 12, and we work down through verse 16, and we deal with then, in light of that great truth for us, and understanding that as God's people, how, like, what's the posture of a Christian in suffering? And he gives us three. There's the posture of not being surprised by our trials. There's the posture of enjoying the participation with Christ's sufferings. And then there's a posture of understanding what your suffering is and what your suffering is not. What is good suffering and what is bad suffering. Let's talk about those three things for a moment. Don't be surprised by trials, it says there in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial or ordeals or circumstances when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I love it, right? Dear friends, beloved, however your translation says it. This is the heart of a pastor. He's coming right into the mix. He's coming right into the hard parts of their lives. He's not ignoring the difficulties. So many churches gloss over suffering. They just want to put a nice show on us, make us all feel happy and feel good about ourselves. 
and about our circumstances, but, but the true Christian, true pastoral Christian, a true pastor of a church, like Peter, understands that these are people, and this is his suffering flock. Peter is handling these people like they're, they're his flock. He's compassionate towards them. There's tenderness in Peter's words. He has the heart of, of a shepherd. And again, so important as we get into the next phase here when he starts giving instructions to the elders here next week or so. Now, isn't this fascinating? Again, I've noted it a few times, but I hope you've heard it. How much different Peter is in his own letters than what he is depicted like in the Gospels. A man who was hard and arrogant, you know, superficial at times, brash. That's not the Peter we read of, and that's not the pastoral context of his letter. He loves these people, and he's willing to bear with these people's burdens. What's more, though, he understands when one Christian suffers, the whole body suffers. And we should suffer with him. And that's what he's, this is this attitude that he has. It's not strange. We're all suffering with each other together. First Corinthians 12, verse 26. I'm going to try to, I didn't mark it in my Bible, so give me a second here and I'll find it. First Corinthians 12, verse 26. Very, very brief verse, but it's, it's important. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, we all rejoice together. Peter understands that it's his role. He's not going to gloss over painful circumstances and painful trials. And that's indeed what's happening here. He's speaking to a real pain that the people are experiencing. Now, let, let's also not jump to the conclusion that somehow know that this was mass persecution across the, 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 the empire. Now, we do know that that happened eventually. Okay? But, but what he's dealing with here is this, the reality of being Christians in a world that is so contrary to what we believe. And he understood that. There's no indication that there was some normative persecution of the church in Peter's letter, although, again, we know it gets there historically. But they're just facing volatile experiences. Not necessarily violent experiences. They, they under, he understood that there were facing social consequences and social pressures for being Christian in an increasingly, in an increasing way. Yeah, perhaps there were some experiencing greater levels of trial and perhaps experiencing physical difficulties and, and, and maybe uh, economic difficulties for being a Christian. But remember, Peter starts off his letter for, in, in 1 Peter in verse uh, 7 of chapter 1 that we are those being refined by fire. Like, so the whole context of his letter is a people being refined by fire. We must remember that that's part of it. So he's, he's speaking to us in whatever trial we may face this morning, whether that's a health trial, an economic trial, a job trial, a marriage trial, a you know, relational trial, whatever. He's speaking to Christians of all swaths here this morning. And he's saying, don't be surprised. They're not strange. Don't get caught off by the trials. And we can kind of be lured into this hopeful, comfortable slumber as Christians sometimes when we live in a world where we don't really face really significant trials until we do. And then we think, oh my gosh, something strange is happening. No, it's not, actually. Christians are not called, though, to chase opportunities to suffer, but we must recognize that they're just realities. Suffering will find us just fine, right? We don't have to go looking for it. It'll find us at time. And the seasons will ebb and flow, as I've said before. But the main reason 
We should not be surprised by our suffering, is what he will note in that next section, because we are participating in the sufferings of Christ. And that leads us to our second point, or the second application here. We need to get the joy, this is the posture of a Christian, to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Amen? And do we understand what that means? But rejoice insofar as it says there, as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, we are suffering now, participating in the sufferings of Christ, because one day Christ returns and his entire glory of God's kingdom and consummated for us. And so we have a people who live here now with an eye towards what's coming. That's always the Christian's disposition. We're not, by the way, going and scouring the Bible for who's the Antichrist. We're not scouring the Bible for which government's more corrupt than the others. This is not what Jesus said. Jesus said, no, that's fool's game. It's a fool's game. No, the Christian keeps his hope on Christ, always ready for when Christ comes again. Always. So in other words, your suffering now is a participation in the sufferings of Christ so that, it says right here, you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Make sense? It's strange teaching for Christians, right? We're supposed to be joyful in our sufferings. Like no one, like what? Who puts that together? Right? None of us put that together. But we should see that our stewardship of suffering means participating with Christ. And if we're participating with Christ, our rejoicing is not some stoic rejoicing, right? It's not a rejoicing. It's a rejoicing that follows suffering for the believer because it reveals to the believer that they're truly united to Christ. Our suffering should be the first place we look to and say, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm suffering for Christ. I'm really united to him. You're not called to suffering like this, a torturous smile on your face. Right? Those people are weird. All right? I'm sorry, if you're in that position, it's just weird. We're not called to a torturous, put a torturous smile on our face. That's not it. All right? We're not promised that we will no longer feel pain and suffering. So that's not what the Christian is. So we're not called to that. No. And neither does our suffering in and of itself bring some kind of mystical union between us and God. Now make sure we're clear about that too. Rather, it's us enjoying abiding in Christ. Us enjoying sharing in the profound nature of Christ and his ministry. It's the privilege. It's the privilege. Never be ashamed of your privilege in Christ. Our suffering is about being like him, as Paul says in Romans 6. Like him in his death, to be specific, in case you were wondering. To identify with Christ through his baptism is to identify with his death and suffering. When we take the Lord's Supper here, I'll note it here in a little bit, we are identifying with his, because it's the, it represents his death and his suffering. That's how we identify with him. We are uniting ourselves with him. So then, why do we do these weird things like baptism and Lord's Supper? Because we are reminding ourselves in the midst of our suffering life that we are united to Christ. We are united to Christ. Never forget that believer. Never. His obedience led to his suffering. Therefore, in our obedience to suffer like Christ, we 
find the joy of it. Not, again, not in a sadistic way, but we do it because we know that what we suffer now is temporary. Because Christ's obedience accomplished everything we need. That's why we sing the songs we do. It becomes a guarantee of our future, right? Our suffering in some weird way reminds us that our future is guaranteed. It reminds us that I'm, I'm sure in Christ. I'm united to him, and there's nothing that can change that trajectory. Amen? That's what we're called to. Christ comes, his glory will be revealed, and the confirmation of all of his suffering and our suffering will be found not in vain. Not in vain. Glory awaits the suffering servant Jesus and all those who suffer with him until he returns. But just make sure that we understand this, though. It's not just enough for us to not be surprised by trial. It's not just enough for us to participate in the sufferings of Christ. But it's also remind ourselves what good suffering is and what is perhaps bad suffering. That's what it says here in this text here. It says... Uh, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, verse 14, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or even as a meddler. Peter says it very clearly. True suffering, true suffering is a blessed life. I know that's hard to comprehend. I can't get my mind around it. But what is Peter doing here? Is he not recalling back the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? He, he was sitting there in that iconic day when, when, when Jesus was teaching his people. We, we studied this a few, couple years ago. But just, just, just to remind ourselves of a few things that Jesus said here. Uh, 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 Ephesians, I'm sorry, Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted, verse 10, for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who revile, blessed are you when you are, others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Be, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. You are blessed. Peter's reflection on this means is meant to give us real encouragement for those who suffer for Jesus in all days that lead up to Jesus' return. This blessing is a present reality, not just a future reality. I cannot say that enough. Even until Jesus returns, the Holy Spirit is mediating all of God's blessings for us. And one day, in that last day, it's just going to pour out. It's just going to pour out. And so he says the Spirit rests on you. He says, look at the, I mean, I love that, that right there. Do we understand what he means there that, that, that anyone who suffers as a Christian, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong passage here. Um, if you are insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. He's recalling the great promises that he gave Israel, and he wants to remind the church is even more true for them today. That great spirit rests on you. The spirit of glory. What's he talking about there? Israel was led and protected and guided by God through the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. God's presence with, with, with his people. If, that, if God protected and cared for his people through that, as they followed this tabernacle throughout the wilderness, 
How much more is he protecting us today when we have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of power, who is the pillar of fire, who is the cloud by day, that lives inside and dwells his very people? God's Christ's presence with us through the Holy Spirit is with God's people today. Isaiah envisions this. For the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, who? Jesus, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be, shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall, not ju- um, he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes on what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, and he shall kill the wicked, righteous shall be left, shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The spirit of that Christ dwells us. It dwells us. So Christians need to, and non-Christians need to be really honest about what their suffering is and what is true suffering, because the world has a really twisted way of looking at suffering today. Right? If you don't make enough income, it's not. That's suffering. Yes, and there's some truth to that. But remember, he, Peter's already kind of broached this topic back in verse 17 and 18, back in chapter 3, about the Christian need not suffer, need to suffer for good but not evil. And so he's talking to the Christian here, don't suffer for silly things. Don't suffer for silly things. Please don't suffer for silly things. There's no reason for Christians to suffer for silly things. No, Christians must not suffer for wrong reasons like murder, theft, and other stuff. No, a Christian suffers for this reason. Their judgment is just. In other words, if you're just foolish, you deserve your judgment. You deserve your suffering. So don't, don't be the guy, don't be the goofy Christian out there who thinks that, oh, well, I'm experiencing suffering because I'm a Christian, but really you're just kind of rude. You know? You're just really not a nice person. Or you just say some really wackadoodle things from time to time. Right? Don't be that guy. Certainly don't be the person who justifies because of your faith that you're, like some religions, that you can just, you know, you can kind of rid yourself of people who murder and theft or whatever. That, that somehow justifies. Your faith justifies those, the ends justify the means kind of mentality. Don't be a meddler. And that's weird because that's kind of different than the other two. It's like he's trying to say, look, this extends to all things of life. Like murder and theft seem pretty obvious. Those are sins. Meddler kind of gets in some gray areas, does it not? Don't be a busybody. Don't be a gossip. Don't be the person who's sitting around here acting like you're Mr. or Mrs. Know-it-all, and you have all the answers for the world, and you're just going to sit there in your high, mighty little chair looking down on everybody else around him. Like, that's the kind of idea that Peter has, an idea of this meddler. See, there's a huge difference between presenting God as just and holy rather than presenting the gospel with an arrogant disposition, interfering with some kind of higher and mighty attitude of judgment. But don't, don't use the means of the world. Like you don't, it's not ends justify the means. Don't do that. Don't be that person. No, Christians suffer for good. If they suffer for evil, they're just, their suffering is just. And that's why it's really, really important that Christians take crime seriously. And we live in a world where they haven't. And churches turn a blind eye to crimes in the church, abuses in the church, and that's why we live in a day and age where those things are so right there in our face. The church is sitting there going, I don't know how to deal with this. No, we do, actually. It's called 
it's called, it's called faith and repentance. And we call people to faith and repentance, and when they have lived in a way that's contrary to the gospel, we must call them to repentance. And if it involves a crime, we must pull them, take them to the magistrate, and they must pay their due. Christians must take these kinds of things seriously. And when we don't, we become a meddler, we can endorse theft, we endorse murder in weird and subtle ways. Okay? No, Christians suffer for good. So the world will see our suffering for Christ, and they'll see it as kind of a shameful thing. Why in the world would you suffer for that? We saw it last week, right? They ridicule you for not participating in all their debauchery. They don't understand it. You will, you, you'll get that. The world sees this, but Christ vindicates those who suffer for his namesake. Christ vindicates his, this, us. Our suffering will also be a testimony to the world. It will be a testimony to the wicked. And that testimony will either serve one of two purposes. It'll call, I'm sorry, purposes. It'll call them to repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, or it will be a death knell. Right? So as we finish up, let's not be ashamed of our or surprised by our privilege to participate in the sufferings of Christ in this life. This doesn't mean that all of life has to be as hard as it can be. Again, you don't have to be, go be a suffering hunter, right? You don't have to be a poverty purveyor. You don't have to be that kind of person, okay? Or that Christians are called to seek out the hardest possible lifestyle. Like there, there are those out there who say things like that. It's just not true. We're called to live quiet and peaceable lives. Take care of your family. Be a good neighbor. Show up. Be in each other's lives. That's the kind of context Peter's been building up these last several weeks. The suffering we experience, whether it's social stigma, following for following Christ, or perhaps even more extreme things like physical suffering or material suffering, we must remember it's part of our privilege. It's part of our privilege. And as we turn to the Lord's table here in a moment, we prepare to pray. When you come to the table, it's your privilege given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an invitation by the Lord saying you get to participate. Till I return in my sufferings for my glory and for your good. Amen. God, help us this morning as we finish up. Thank you for this word. May your people be encouraged, blessed, challenged. May your people be changed as we leave this place here in a few moments. And may God, you be glorified in the end. We love you. In Christ's name we pray.